You may be seated. If you want to find your Bibles, we are in the book of Ephesians. We're walking through it passage by passage. We are at a great text this morning. So if you want to find Ephesians chapter 4, we would all agree that the church is somehow to bring glory to God, right? We've kind of sung about it. Uh, Lorna just read a scripture passage, Ephesians chapter 3, like verses 20 and 21, that tell us that the church is for the glory of God. But the question is, like, how does that actually happen? Like, how does God bring glory to himself? I mean, take a look at it. He says in verse 21, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. How does God bring glory to himself in the church? And I'll tell you this, that if you can't answer that question, then what happens is, you start to assume, well, the church is really just all about me and just for me. And that's exactly what has happened in contemporary American Christian culture. We can't really answer the question, how does God bring glory to himself through the church? So what happens is we start thinking, hey, the church is really all about me. My desires are my needs being met. Uh, It's about me being happy a church that will engage me in terms of entertaining me. And what happens with churches like that, they are shaped and groomed by pastors who have lost sight of giving God glory and seeing God exalted and his character being manifested in the lives of his people to churches now just another way for me to get some strokes about having people like me and about popularity and how I can use the church to make me more popular. And we have to be able to answer this question, how? How does God glorify himself through the life of Christ's church? And the answer to this most profound question is found in the text we're going to look at today, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And the first thing I want you to see is that God glorifies himself by gifting leaders to shepherd the body of Christ. So take a look, chapter 4, verse 11. And it says this, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So remember, last week we saw that just in the prior text, that God gives gifts to all believers. So when you and I come to a place where we put our faith and trust in Christ, Jesus Christ, as our Savior from the penalty of sin, but also as the Lord of our lives, God's Holy Spirit actually indwells in us. Like it says in Ephesians 3.17, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. And this same Spirit of God that empowers us also gives gifts to us. These spiritual gifts are given by God to allow us to be equipped to help the body of Christ grow and flourish. And every Christian has some spiritual gift. The New Testament gives about 29 in four different passages, but it's not meant to be exhaustive, but really representative that there's all sorts of different gifts that God gives believers to help the body, the church, the called out ones grow. They come into two major categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. And in one of the passages, Ephesians chapter 4, where we're looking at today, we see that God not only gives gifts to all of his believers, 
but he also gives those particular roles that will help the church flourish. They are, God is going to gift individuals to fulfill particular roles so that the church will be everything that God intended, that God will be glorified through the body of believers that are united with Christ. And you see them, and he starts actually talking about these roles. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles. So this is referring to the 12 disciples. And you remember Judas took his own life after betraying Christ. He was replaced by a guy by the name of Matthias. You see that in Acts chapter 1. But then you also have the apostle Paul, who became the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, one of the qualifications of being an apostle is that you have had to have seen the risen Christ, okay? But these apostles had a very unique role in the church, and they had three basic responsibilities. One, they were the ones who were responsible, responsible for laying the foundation of the church. So everybody who is believing in Christ is now a part of his church, his body, the called out ones, the assembly of those who are trusting in Christ. And so the apostles laid the foundation of how the church is to function, what its focus is to be. And God used the apostles to actually write down his word. He had his word expressed through their lives as they spoke, but he also had them write down the words that he wanted specifically to complete the Bible, to write the New Testament. So you have the apostles or their very close associates writing down the letters and the books that God intended to use to shepherd his people. And then there was a third role for the apostles, and that is that they manifested signs and wonders to authenticate to a watching world that they were being sent from God and that their words were from God. And these signs and wonders, we're talking about healing. Um, there were actually even at different times, even raising someone from the dead. These were authenticating miracles to show that God was at work in their midst and that his word was going forth through these apostles. They were the officially sent ones. Now, as you read the New Testament, you find the apostles, like the capital A apostles, but you also find the little a apostles because the word means sent ones. And God has lots of ones that were sent. And you find like Timothy and uh, Silas and Barnabas, Andronicus, Junius, just to name a few. These were those who were sent, but not in the official capacity that they were the official apostles. It referred to those who were sent on a mission. And so you have the apostles that God gave, the capital A apostles, to lay the foundation to give the word of God. Now, there are no apostles, capital A apostles, today. That's because you have to, first of all, see the risen Lord, right? So every once in a while, you see it. Every once in a while, like even the newspaper or in the news, you've got some self-appointed apostle, right? Capital A, I want you to know he is not an official apostle because all of them are dead, right? They have passed from the scene. But related to the apostles in the, in the foundation of the early church were the prophets. You see that there in the text, verse 11? He gave some as apostles and some as prophets. These were those who would speak um, God's truth 
in particular situations, okay? Oftentimes, they were those who would encourage the saints, calling to mind what the apostles had written or had spoke, but God would sometimes even use them for actually foretelling future events that were going to take place in specific churches or specific instances. And so this was the rule of the prophets. But once the New Testament letters were being written and went into circulation, these apostles and prophets, these unique roles, they passed from the scene with the passing of the apostles. And if you've ever studied church history, you know that's exactly what happened. All these signs and wonders, they end after the giving of the New Testament, and these letters were moved into circulation. But God is still very much in the business of shepherding his people. So with the passing of the apostles and these holy prophets, then you also have, verse 11, you have the evangelists. You see that? These were traveling ministers. You really should think of them as like missionaries that go where the gospel and Christ is absolutely not known. The most famous uh, of the evangelists that you find in the book of Acts is a guy by the name of Philip. And you find him in Acts 8, 21. Uh, He is one who goes to people who do not know Christ. And that was the role that evangelists had. Now, when we hear evangelists, we think about, well, someone that tells people about Jesus. And here's one of the problems. We think like, well, if God's got evangelists, I don't need to do anything. I'll just leave it to the professionals, right? I'll leave it to the really gifted gals and guys to do that. Actually, all of us have the privilege and the responsibility to tell people about Jesus. The great commission of making disciples of all the nations is not given to a few. It's given to who? All who know Christ, right? And so we have evangelists. This was just one more specific role that God had established in laying the foundation for the church and encouraging them and having the gospel go forth. And these evangelists would be used to even establish new churches. But then notice verse 11, you have, and some as pastors and teachers. Grammatically in the Greek text, this is one and the same office. These aren't like, well, you got pastors and some are teachers, but they're really pastors, teachers. The word pastor means shepherd, okay? So when you think of shepherd, what do you think? Sheep, right? What does a shepherd do? He leads them, guides them, makes sure they're eating, right? Takes them to water. When there's danger, he wards them off. If they need, they're going into a dangerous place, he's going to guide them back into safety. If they're hurt, he's going to fix them. If they're lost, right, he's going to go out and find them. That's what shepherds do, right? And that's the same inference that is given to the role of pastor teacher. He's a shepherd. He's got leadership skills. He cares. He cares about the well-being of God's people. And the primary means by which the shepherd, the pastor, is involved in leading, caring, guiding, correcting, is through what? Teaching. That's why they're connected. Teaching is the primary function for these unique roles, these pastor teachers. And they are what? Teaching Not their own thoughts, not their best ideas, just whatever we can kind of pick up from society and kind of help put it all together for you, but rather, they are teaching the Word of God. The only commission that is given is to what? Preach 
the word, not your human experience, not just your favorite stories, not the topics that just of interest to you. We are called to preach the word. They are pastor teachers. They are involved in counseling, confronting, uh, comforting, guiding. They need to have skill at it. They need to have character. There has to be a Christ-centeredness to their life because it's all about God and his glory. You see, God hasn't left his people as orphans. Like, you just go figure it out. Hope it works out well for you. No. He cares deeply about the well-being of his people. That's why these roles were given. And specifically, pastors and teachers, they function as leaders. They're shepherds. That's what shepherds do. They lead sheep. Bob Beale, that famous uh, Christian consultant, gives a great definition of a leader. The leader knows what to do, why it's important, and how to bring the appropriate resources to bear, right? That's what a leader does. That's what a shepherd does. And he is leading them to a particular goal. And we're going to take a look at that. But before we do, and we take a look at what exactly these pastors and teachers are supposed to be focused on, you might be wondering, like, well, how do you actually know, like, if God's called you to be a pastor or teacher? Like, what does that look like? We all are discerning and figuring out, like, our gifts, right? But how about this pastor or teacher? What does that look like? Well, I know hundreds of pastors. I'm in regular uh, encouragement and talking with different pastors. They all have kind of some unique stories, but they all have some, some particular features of how they identified that they were called to be a pastor. And I thought I would just maybe share just briefly with you what it looked like in my life. So after I became a Christian, uh, when I was in college, um, it's just like, you know, I knew nothing. Now I know Jesus. And I started like learning the word. And, and by the time I got to my senior year, I really had really committed myself to the lordship of Christ. I, I really wanted now what God wanted for my life. Okay. Instead of me trying to figure it out and do what I want, I would come to a place like, God, I really want what you want. And so I was exploring being in the business world. I was in the business school, and that made sense. I'd met Christian businessmen. I thought, wow, that'd be a great way to serve Christ. But then uh, I considered maybe, uh, maybe I'm supposed to be a missionary. I'm maybe even a pastor. I don't know much, but uh, maybe, I don't know. But since I was kind of not sure, uh, one of the guys that was discipling me uh, said, you know, you shouldn't go into full-time Christian ministry until you cannot do anything else. Meaning, in your heart, there's only one thing you can do. So that settled it for me. So I went into the business world. But I was actively growing and serving Christ all through my uh, college years after I became a Christian. And then as soon as I got out and I got started my first job, I actually picked my church before I chose my job. And I was very involved in ministry. Started a college guy's Bible study, uh, also involved a lot of basketball, but then also was very involved in music. Then got involved in student ministry, junior high, high school. I was regularly teaching, leading, investing, discipling. I was also involved in music, and I was growing as much as possible. Not only was I learning uh, through messages, I mean, uh, Scott Gilchrist, the senior pastor at Southwest Bible Church, was like amazing. He really knew God and the Word. I was like taking notes all the time. I'm like a lot of you, man. I, man, this is so good. I want to learn. But I, I would also take classes at night from Malton Love School of the Bible because I really wanted to grow and learn. And then I, what happened is I, I still was strongly sensing like, maybe I think I'm supposed to be a pastor. And I'm, so what I did, I talked to Scott, the senior pastor. And the first time we had a real long discussion on this, he tried to talk me out of going to seminary. He thought like seminary would wreck me. And so he talked me like, you know, why don't you just keep he, to use his term, don't disturb the apple cart. 
just keep going. So I did. But then that next year, there was just this strong impression that this is what I'm supposed to do. So I went through a long personal evaluation, looked at all the qualities of an elder, studied them out, did a self-analysis. But then I met with the people that knew me best, like most of my coworkers and all the people that I was doing ministry with. And then I tried to get their feedback. They were all very affirming. And then finally, that led me to, once again, meet with the leadership of my local church because I believe this, that if God was calling me to be a pastor, he would do so through the leadership of my local church. And so I, I met with Scott. I presented all this to him. I said, but I'm not going to go unless you send me. And he said, it is time to go. And when I said send me, not that they would ever pay a dime for any education, but that I would be understood like God is calling me to this process. And that was a process that was affirmed, eventually being commissioned by the church. But once I sense like this is what God's calling me to do, I like, I think I need to be educated. I, I know a little bit, but not much. And so seminary is where pastors and missionaries go to get trained. But um, I was like, but should I go to seminary? Is that really a good idea? I really wish I would remember this guy's name. Uh, I was desperate to answer that question. I went to Multnomah School of the Bible, and I actually walked around where all the faculty offices were just to see if I could engage some of these professors to run my situation by to get an answer to that question. And there was no one there except this one particular professor. I introduced myself, asked if I could have a little bit of his time, explained the question I was after. He wanted to know a little bit about my current ministry. I told him what I was doing. It's like, well, you know, okay. You want to know why you should go to seminary? He said, you know, if you don't go, you should expect that you probably will have a very fruitful ministry. All the things that you see God doing now will probably continue. But to answer your question, why you should go to seminary, it'll give you a much deeper ministry. You will encounter men who have really studied the word of God. You're going to learn the original languages of Greek and Hebrew. You will engage in the depth of systematic theology in ways that you probably will never experience if you don't go. It'll give you a much deeper ministry. And so I eventually got a degree from Western Seminary and then later went on to Dallas Theological Seminary to get my doctorate. I tell you this, though, because in order to pastor well, you want to be trained well. And how we lead is primarily through teaching, to know the Word of God and to help people understand it. And for those of you who are pastors or thinking about maybe God's calling you to be a pastor, or folks that are watching or listening later on, I want to give you just a few words of advice. Um, First of all, you want to live in the love of God and really learn how to love the people. Second, you want to um, learn all that you can about the Bible. You always want to be growing and learning about the scriptures, about what maturity in Christ really looks like, and everything you can about leadership. Third, you want to look to be a continuous improvement shepherd. You want to always be growing. You'd never want to coast. You need good mentors in your life that are going to challenge you, correct you, and always call you up. You want to always be growing as you're discipling. And third, fourth then, do this. You need to actually lead by example. You need to live out the message, the word. You model the message because the most effective leadership comes from leading by example. And you see, God has called apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers to do what? To do this, to 
to shepherd the body of Christ so that the people will grow to the fullness of maturity. And that's exactly what we see here in verses 12 and 13. See, God glorifies himself by not only gifting shepherds who will lead, but also developing believers to build up the body of Christ. So take a look here, verse 12. Why has he given these evangelists and pastors and teachers? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. You see, we are he equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. This word equipping means to restore something to its original condition, to be made fit for purpose. It was used in the Greek language in surgery to actually like uh, setting like a broken bone or to put a bone back in its joint. In the New Testament, we find this like in Mark chapter 1 where they're mending nets. They're making those nets sturdy and whole to fulfill the function which they're intended. And that's what equipping the saints is. You see, when you and I come to know Christ, he intends that we are equipped to serve him well. Prior to knowing Jesus, how interested were you in building up the body of Christ and serving others? Probably not very interested at all, right? You were unwilling and unable. But when you came to know Jesus, didn't you see him through the working of the Holy Spirit bringing about these changes and desires? Desires to actually serve him, to honor and glorify God. It's the equipping of the saints. And you're like, well, what What kind of equipping? So if pastor teachers are to be equipping, well, like, well, how do you equip them? Like, what areas do you focus on? Here's an easy way to remember that. Start with their head, what they're thinking. You equip them with the knowledge of the truth. That is why God has given the word. We don't preach ourselves, our experiences, just our favorite stories. We give them the word. We want people to understand the scriptures. So you equip them with the knowledge of the truth. You focus on their head, but you don't leave it there. Then you focus on their heart. You want them to have the character of God, to understand convictions that are based on scripture, to grow in compassion so that they're living differently, that their heart as a result of the word and the working of the Spirit, is starting to beat like God's. They're beginning to love, and they have convictions and character that are uh, modeled and walking in a manner worthy of him. And finally, so you have head, heart. Next is hands. You give them skills. You equip them so that they will be successful, whether they're teaching, serving, leading, whatever they might be. That's what pastors and teachers are to do. Spiritual leaders equip believers. That's what they do. And, you know, the problem is, is that the church is kind of like, we just kind of bypass this. I love what uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks, uh, he's the late great professor at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. He's also a longtime chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys. And he'd say this every once in a while. You know, the church really has become too much like a football game where you've got 50,000 people sitting in the stands desperately in need of exercise, watching 22 people on the field desperately need of rest, okay? That's kind of what's happened. Got all these cheering spectators, right? And if you're not playing quite the way I'd like, well, we're done with you, right? And boo, and I want you to know, he said, That's kind of taken root in the church. 
And friends, that's not the church as God has defined and described it. We are to be what? Look what the text says. We're equipping the saints for the work of the service. I don't know if you know this, but if you're a saint, meaning you're trusting Christ, guess what? You're on the field. You probably want to get your shoes tied because you're on, right? You're in there. You're in the game. You need to know that. You equip the saints for the work of service. Anything that can benefit the body of Christ, physical needs, spiritual, emotional, relational, but it's the body of Christ working together. We're equipping the saints for the work of service so that the body is being built up. One of the most important things that I could pass on to you as just a word of advice, see your life as your ministry. Everything you do. Not just when you're at church or, well, I've got a ministry at the church and then I'm going to serve God there, but the rest of the time, that's my own thing. I'll do whatever I want. No, no, no. You see your job, how you work with your family, what you do in the neighborhood, as you're at the grocery store, how you're exercising while you're at school. See your life as your ministry. You are serving. And that's what he's talking about here. We're actually after building up the body of Christ. Now, when we hear the word building or building up, we kind of think of like a, like a physical structure, right? Like, like a temple and putting all the stones together and it's being built up. But here in Ephesians chapter 4, the building up is referring to a, like the parallel of a physical body starting in infancy that is growing, developing, and maturing. Like the body is growing and the parts are working and you're learning how to have balance and how to stand after you've crawled and being able to function and do things, it is that kind of building up where you move from infancy, where pretty much everybody has to do everything for you, to your high functioning. Why, you can do all sorts of things. You can even feed yourself and brush your teeth, right? I mean, these are great celebrations. They were in my household, right? And that's what God intends for his people that we would grow to the fullness of maturity, that we're building up the body of Christ. That tells you that every single one of us has a role. Did you know that? If you are in the body of Christ, you have a role. And if you are like, well, I'm not really interested in being too involved or helping too much, I want you to know who suffers. We all do. You do, because you're not growing like God intended, But we all suffer because, you know what? We're interdependent. We need each other. See, when this isn't done, the body suffers. You need to know that our personal faith in Christ permanently uh, unites us with the body of believers. Our personal faith in Christ permanently unites us with all believers. And so that's why we're learning we're being equipped how to love and serve and share and teach and invest and counsel and correct and to do things that we thought we'd maybe never be able to do. God's in the business of what? Glorify him, glorifying himself, and he does so through the developing of the believers who are building up the body of Christ. You see, when we're growing in Christ, we're growing together. And to believe is to belong. Somewhere along the line, we've bifurcated that. No, 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 I believe in Jesus. But the whole idea of me belonging, well, I'll belong to the degree that I want to belong. I'll, I'll go to the church 
if, if I feel like it, see what's going on there, and if that makes me happy, or I'm just going to check out for a while. And the pandemic has only made this much worse. We're all of a sudden like being involved with the body of Christ, totally optional. I was fine without him. I didn't see him in the pandemic and didn't engage. So, no, no, I want you to know to believe is to belong. At somewhere along the line, if you do not think that you belong to the body of Christ and you have anything to do with them, you're not involved and committed to a local church, you're forming your own religion. That's not what the New Testament is speaking of. When God says, I want to glorify myself through the church, verse 21, this is how I'll do it. Gifted shepherds and developing believers who are building up the body of Christ. And that's exactly what he says. You want to see the kind of maturity that he's after? Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see that? He's bringing us to the unity of the faith to a mature, fully mature individual that is complete, that knows Christ. I want you to know, like, just like my ministry, a big part of my ministry is to help people experience, express, and enjoy growing as a mature, loving disciple of Christ. Anything I can do in teaching, coming alongside, encouraging, to help you grow to the fullness of maturity in Christ. That's what shepherds do. And when he talks about the unity of the faith, this is like Jude Jude 3 says, it is the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. It is the body of doctrine given to us in the word. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, what is God doing? He is laying the foundation through the holy apostles and the prophets, right? With Christ being the cornerstone. So the idea is that we are built up on Christ and the word of God that is given to us by the apostles. So it's not that, well, all we have to do is agree on a few key fundamental doctrines. Actually, that's just the start. God has given us his word, and frankly, there is a lot into it. But he has done so intentionally so that we would grow to the fullness of maturity in him. Do you get the idea that God doesn't want to leave us as infants, but he wants to shepherd us to growth, fullness of maturity? And so he's talking about this unity of the faith, that we're unified on the scriptures. As much as possible, we want everything we do and believe to be based on this word. We can discuss it, dive into deep into, deep into it, but he wants us unified on his, in his truth. And there is a purpose for that. His inspired, inerrant word, meaning it's without error, is to be the basis by which we grow. Remember Jesus said, Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So if you're not eating, likely you're not growing, right? And it's this word, it's without error. It is inerrant, and that's totally under attack right now because there's a lot of folks that are saying, well, the Bible's like full of lots of errors, you know, and it's maybe good to help encourage your faith, but you can't trust it implicitly. When God, yes, you can, he is fully capable and has given us a word without error in its original autographs. And so we give ourselves to the word, why? Do you see that in verse 13? so that we would come to a knowledge of the Son of God. This isn't just referring to a saving knowledge, but is the deep intimacy 
of knowing Christ. It's like what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, where he says that really I want to come to know him and the power of his resurrection and to have the fellowship of his sufferings, even being conformed to his death. Who talks like that? Fellowship of his sufferings? Conformed to his death? That I may know him. I'll tell you who talks like that. Someone who understands that God wants me to have a deep experience with him. To know the loveliness and the fullness of Jesus. And when he talks about being made complete, do you see that there? In verse 13, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That you and I, through our relationship with Christ and growing in his word, we reflect the heart of God Faithfulness, humility, truth, strength, wisdom. That these characteristics are being reflected in our life because of our relationship with the living Savior himself. Friends, that's where maturity comes from. You want gravitas? You don't want to be whipped around in the wind all the time? You want to have clarity, strength, direction, peace, true maturity? Let me tell you where it's found. It's found here with God and his word. And that's what he's looking to do. If that's the case, where God is looking to bring us to the fullness of a mature man, then one of the things that we need to do is kind of get a handle on our emotions. Christian music artist Twyla Paris gave this quote. Good quote. Listen to this. A big part of Christian maturity is learning to let God keep you steady and to be ruled less and less by your emotions and your circumstances. Ooh. To be ruled less and less by your emotions and your circumstances. You see, God wants authenticity in Christ to be manifest through your life, in our church, to a watching world. Now, that word authentic Boy, that's really coming to play in these last few years, right? You just need to, you be you. You heard that before, right? You just need to be who you are, right? Authenticity, you just need to be genuine. And so there's a lot of talk like, what does that actually mean? Turns out, folks are really confused. What is authenticity? In um, the Scientific American magazine, a couple years ago, in 2019, they ran an article on this, and the author presented some rather perplexing questions because they were finding out that folks really don't even know what is authentic. And so in this article, the writer asked these perplexing questions. Are you being most authentic when you are being consistent with your emotions? I hear a lot about that. Yeah, consistent with my emotions, how I'm feeling. That's that's how I need to be living. But he goes on to say, or are you being most authentic when you are Consistent with your beliefs. Oh, okay. Hmm. So which is real authenticity? So he gives an example. Were you really being you when you gave that waiter a piece of your mind for the terrible service? Or did authenticity, was that manifested when you withheld your disparaging comments because you actually value kindness, and you were living out your beliefs. I want you to know the world says, listen, you just live out your emotions. 
how you feel, that's you, and you express it. I want you to know that if you're in Christ, God wants you to live out his son. He has given us his word and his Holy Spirit. We are called to live out our faith, right? Not our feelings. Feelings are genuine. Please don't think like, I'm, I'm like, well, feelings are, we just need to ignore them. No, they're genuine and they definitely have a role. They fill life with a lot of color. But we are not to be governed by our feelings so much as we are to be ruled and led by Christ and our faith in him. This is what God has called us to do. He wants to glorify himself through his church. You know how he does it? He does so by gifting leaders to shepherd well. And second of all, he does so by developing believers to build up the body of Christ. That is what the church is to do. That is how God is glorified through the church. But here's the problem. We have bought into another story. And the story goes like this. Well, yeah, we can see in the Bible that, yeah, if you've got pastors that are teaching the word, you should pay them. Okay, we'll do it. We'll give and give some money, and they'll do the ministry, and we'll watch. Every once in a while, just pass some evaluation, what we might think about that. And so that's, for the most part, for the last 2,000 years of church history, that's pretty much what's happened. There are some exceptions, but for the most part, you pay a clergy, and you give them all sorts of weird titles, like clergy, please, man of cloth. And we'll even sometimes put some weird garments on them to kind of make them stand out, right? And the rest, we'll just sit back. And, and in fact, we'll even call them our ministers. They serve us. And the rest, you know, we're just like this whole idea of us being equipped to do the work of the service. It's like it doesn't even exist. Of course, if we never read our Bibles, we'll never come across it. Never study the book of Ephesians, you won't even know. And that's pretty much how it's landed. I thought this morning it'd be helpful to make sure that everyone at Fellowship Bible Church knew who the ministers are. And so I want you to make sure that you, you know them. Would you like to meet them? You would? Good. I want you to look to your left and your right. Serious, take a look. Are you serious? Yes, you. The, are you looking? Oh my, yes you are. I got my engaged couple out. Did you just, just kiss there? Okay, okay, no? All right, all right. It must have been the lights. Okay, anyway, I want you to know that you are the church. We're the church together. My job description is right here. Ephesians 4, 11, 12, 13. All pastors, this is our job description, and we're to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Friends, I want you to know this has been our history. This isn't like news. If you're new to fellowship, this is like bread and butter for us. This is where we've lived. But let me assure you, this is where we're going. We believe God and his word. Even our mission statement is this, to glorify God. Whoa, I see that right there. Chapter 3, verse 21, right? To glorify God by living out the life we have in Christ. Huh. Wow, that's exactly what we're talking about here. Life is an acronym for loving God, investing in others, following his word, engaging our world. You see, friends, God is glorified as the church lives out the life that we have in Christ. That's what he intends. You ever heard of Herman and Donna Ostry? I, I might be surprised if you had. They're, 
There are farmers outside of a no-name, no-nothing town, little town in Nebraska, Bruno, Nebraska, okay? It's barely on the map. I looked it up yesterday, last night, and I found it. It is really small, and outside of this very little small community is this farm where you've got Herman and Donna Ostry. And uh, I tell you about them because they had a really serious problem. They had this 60-year-old barn, and it was kind of down in a, like a little hollow there. Uh, the nearby river kept flooding on an increasing basis, filling their barn with water, which if you're a farmer, that's a really bad thing because you need that barn. But this is a huge barn. In fact, so big, it was 60 years old, 56 feet long, 28 feet wide, 27 feet high, weighed 18,640 pounds. Uh, Farmer Herman looked into, well, could I have it somehow like lifted and moved? It was cost prohibitive. Uh, Tearing it all down, raising it, and then rebuilding it on higher ground, also was more money than he had. But then Farmer Herman had an idea. He brought in his son, who had been taking some classes in engineering at the uh, community college, and he had an idea. Is it possible that we could lift this and move it? And so he basically commissioned his son, Mike, to figure it out. And so Mike got to work and put all those engineering classes to real good work. And he formed all these handles, and he welded and nailed and tied in this massive lattice where you had handles both outside the barn and inside the barn. And of course, they're going to need some people. And so the word spread. It just so happened that July 30th, 1988, would be the town's centennial. And so the feature event was to try to lift this barn. Okay? So the word got out. And we're talking the word got out. There's not much to Bruno but 3,500 to 4,000 people came to watch this. 344 individuals volunteered to take part and to try to do the impossible, to move this barn and, uh, uh, 143 feet up a slight hill to a new foundation. So everybody's there, and they're all taking it in, right? Cars everywhere, people watching this. And so these individuals all got and they grabbed hold of these handles that the son had welded and fastened on there. And Farmer Herman, on a loudspeaker, would just give the word lift or up and then stop. So everybody's watching. Farmer Herman gave the command lift. And all these 344 individuals picked it up, and this barn moved. It was up in the air. It was the trial. And then he had them set it down. And then the real work was going to start. They were going to climb that slight gradual hill, 143 feet, and reposition that barn. And they did in 20 minutes. Farmer Herman, five different times, gave the command to lift up and then 344 individuals carried this. Now, it weighed 18,640 pounds, but at 344, why, it was anticipated that about each person had to lift about 53 pounds. Of the 344 individuals, there were multiple women, a 13-year-old boy, a 90-year-old man, and a man with an artificial leg. But they packed it up the hill 
and they turned it 90 degrees so it would face the east, and they set it down on the foundation, and they did it in 20 minutes. And I'd like to ask you a question. Can a father have his son accomplish a work and that through the organization of people and at the word of the father, can the impossible be done? Indeed, it can. And friends, that's exactly what God is doing in the church. The father has sent his son who has accomplished his work and he has brought in his people and at the command and at the word of the father, the work of God is being done. Friends, God is glorified as the church lives out the life we have in Christ. Friends, this has been our past. This is our current present, but this is where we're going in the future to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing text. You have told us exactly how you'd intend to glorify yourself through the church. You've given gifted leaders, and you are developing us to build up the body of Christ. We all have a role. So God, would you continue to have your way in our lives? May we be everything you've intended as a church to bring you glory, to accomplish your work. We ask this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.